I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, friends. Welcome to our podcast today. We are uh, continuing our look through the book of Mark. We're going to hit on some themes today that we've heard before, um, and I think that's probably very intentional by the writer. So let's just get started with this. We're in Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. Thanks. Yeah, today with uh, our text, Mark makes explicit what has been happening since the first Passion Prediction, and that is Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And Mark tells us, I'm backing up a little bit to put it in context. Mark tells us in verse 32 that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem specifically. And he also says Jesus was walking ahead of him. They, they were amazed and those who followed were afraid, which is an interesting comment. Uh, it seems that we're to understand that the opposition against Jesus among the Jewish leaders was a cause of concern and even fear on the part of mm-hmm. Jesus' disciples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we should remember that it was way back Back in chapter 3, after Jesus healed the man with a crippled hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, that we're told that the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy Mm -hmm. him. I think that's significant because, you know, we have this early on in Mark's Mark's gospel. We have a similar statement like this in John's gospel, but it happens like right before Jesus enters Jerusalem. You know, and so I think when you compare, you know, it seems like Mark is setting the scene for the opposition, uh, really seriously seeking to do Jesus Mm -hmm. harm Mm -hmm. uh, early on. And I I think they would be very aware of that. I I think so. And 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 if you've ever been in that space, that's that someone is threatening your life. You can feel that it's very it's very scary. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. So let's move on. What happens? So in response, Mark tells us that Jesus took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him. And again, as we've seen before in this section of Mark's gospel, the fact that Jesus took the 12 aside suggests that there was a larger group of disciples with him. And this leads to the third passion prediction in Mark, which is the most complete and most descriptive of the three uh, in Mark 10, 33 and 34. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. It's the most complete of all three passion predictions in the synoptic tradition. Wait, is there a significance that to three instances, three times Jesus does this? Well, you know, um, repetition, I mean, anybody who knows education knows that repetition is a key to learning. And um, I do think there is some significance to the fact that it was repeated. Um, I don't know that the number three has any particular, you know, magical significance or anything like that. I think it was mainly just the idea that, you know, this was hard. This was hard for them to hear. And even after, even after the third time, they still didn't get it. They still aren't picking yeah, up on they it. They still misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And, and what we'll see is there's a pattern. There are three passion predictions. After each passion prediction, one or several of the disciples misunderstand, and then Jesus proceeds to teach them mm-hmm. about the nature of true mm-hmm. discipleship. Is that in part, do you think, because of how they're watching the things that Jesus does, or watching the miracles, or watching the, the, the growing discipleship of him you know the growing number of people following him and they can't comprehend what's going to happen i mean it, it, it even though he tells them it just I, doesn't i personally think in our passage for today they have their they have their heads in a whole different place mm-hmm. they're thinking they're they're dreaming of wow how great it's going to be when jesus ascends the throne of david and mm-hmm. we get to be right by his side so, you know <laughs> you know and it's almost though you know just the ambition and and all of these very human things, which mm-hmm. are also always always involved with human sin, are still driving them forward. And it, it is this—it's this kind of complete reminder of of, of turning the world on its head. It's well, and like we're told earlier on in Mark's gospel, because of the hardness of their hearts, they could not understand. You yeah. Know? And we see this throughout the gospel. It, we've said many times. It's only after Jesus is. is 
crucified in in Mark's gospel that Jesus is recognized by as the Son of God, mm-hmm. and it's not by one of the disciples; right. it's by the Roman centurion. Exactly. Right? So what a so it's an interesting. It's I mean, this really puts into into great um, uh, relief the the idea. That, you know, and it really shows how how strongly the idea is is emphasized in Mark's gospel that the disciples really don't, don't understand. Get it. Yeah, as my college students say. Clueless disciples. They just <laughs> and, and clueless really, I think, is almost is almost too nice a word for that for it. Well, they like to they, say dumb disciples. But <laughs> well, but I mean, it's even more than that. I mean, they're just they they are thinking of a totally different reality, and Jesus is trying to tell them, "Look, guys, it's not going to be this. You know, um, we're not going to be sitting up on thrones here." <laughs> It's gonna be. It's gonna be. You know, something very different from that. All right. So, what happens next? Um, well, you know. So it's in this setting we have the fullest and most descriptive prediction of Jesus' passion that we have this almost unimaginable request from not one but two of the inner circle of the twelve, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they say basically, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." And can you I mean, can you imagine your child, your teenage child, coming up to you? Mom, Dad, I want you to do whatever I ask for you. Will you if, if I yeah. if I get, grant, ask you for a favor, will you do whatever I ask for you? You know, it's kind of a blank check, and you know, basically, Jesus has just told them in a straightforward way he's going to be condemned, rejected, beaten, killed, and they're asking him for favors as if they expected him to be ascending the throne of David any day. And and they were, you know, this was some sort of right. They they were his they were his clients, and he was the patron, and they you know they deserved they deserved some sort of favor because they had followed him faithfully. Exactly, <laughs> you know, and I, I keep thinking about this. You know, these are disciples that have watched Jesus do miracles. That have, these are that have that have watched him. Crowds follow him. I mean, I, I I guess I see why they think. And then yeah, you are the like Messiah. The... Oh, hey, I don't care what you say. This is what I see. Mm-hmm. And you know? and their 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 preconceived notions. That they they read all of that the the miracles and everything Jesus did. They read it all through their preconceived notions, and they came up to the conclusion that any day now Jesus is going to ascend the throne of David. <laughs> He's going to throw off the yoke of the Romans, and we're going to be right there, and we're going to be right, right at his side. So what? actually do they ask for this time so then jesus you know just sort of blandly asks what it is they want and they reply grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory now i think a lot of us in this day we would probably read in your glory as a reference to some distant future Mm -hmm. some kind of heavenly setting but i think they were something thinking of something that was far more tangible and far more immediate um, they believed that he was going to ascend the throne of, of, of David. They were gonna, he was going to reign over all Israel mm-hmm. and, and Judah. And, and they wanted to be viewed by all as the most exalted of Jesus' followers. And, you know, to me, it's hard to imagine them being more obtuse or thoughtless. And that, those might be the better words for it rather than dumb and clueless. Mm-hmm. They were just completely obtuse <laughs> and totally thoughtless. And they were just too caught up in their own, in their right. own ex- expectations. Yeah, right. They're, they're, they're very caught up with human ideas of greatness. I mean, and exactly. I, I, there's something really wonderfully human about that. I mean, who isn't, who isn't, you know, I mean, it's still, it's still a factor today. Exactly. So how does Jesus respond to them? Well, I do want to point out that that by now, probably the reader or the listener of Mark's gospel is accustomed to this because as I mentioned before, all three passion predictions in Mark are followed by some kind of inappropriate response by one or more of the 12. Right, right. So in this particular case, how does Jesus reply? Yeah, he responds rather bluntly. You do not know what you're asking. (laughs) And I think maybe that was a bit of an understatement. And he proceeds to ask them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And here the image of the cup, I think, uh, points us forward to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and asks God to remove this mm-hmm. cup from me. And so it, it, you know, it implies that the cup constitutes the sufferings that he must undergo mm-hmm. to fulfill God's purpose. The reference to Jesus' baptism here is unusual, but we do find a, a similar allusion in Luke twelve fifty, where Jesus says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. Uh, this is a pretty unusual 
use of the word group for baptism, but again, it would seem that Jesus is referring to the sufferings that he has now predicted three times Mm -hmm. for his disciples. And so I think the fact that also the fact that Jesus speaks of the cup as the cup that I drink Mm -hmm. and the baptism is the baptism that I am baptized with suggests his awareness that only Jesus can fully fulfill this task. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something no one else can do but him. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've, we've sort of caught that implication with some of the passion predictions all along. You know, at the beginning, he says, this must happen to the Son of Man. And there was right. some sort of divine necessity that he saw in this. Right. Okay. So, so, yeah, so Jesus asks, are you able to do this? And basically, James and John reply, yes, we are able. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, again, it, it's like, it just seems truly astounding that they would say that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think they knew what they were talking about they, at no. all. I don't think they had the first clue what they were talking about, in fact. And we're going to see there's some clues in here that they really, Mark Mark is trying to frame it as they really don't know what they're well, ta- asking. You know, what's interesting as I'm, as I'm thinking about them, there's a sense of, they they want to please Jesus too. Yes, I can. We'll we're your followers. We'll do whatever yeah. you know. Kind of yeah. like the kind of like the dog Probably responding. So. Probably so. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Jesus in response says, "The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized." Baptized. And the implication here is that those who follow Jesus will indeed drink the cup and follow in His baptism. And He's already really made that explicit earlier when He said that those who follow Him must take up their cross in Mark eight thirty. Which, you know, as we saw before, is an implicit reference to their suffering martyrdom for the faith and, and, and probably is a reference to the fact that some in, in Mark's community may have, may have had to endure this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what happens next? Well, you know, I've often thought that, that modern readers might see this as a kind of bait and switch because he says, okay, you know, you, you're able to drink the cup. You're able mm-hmm. to go through the baptism. You're going to, you, you're going to get it. But then he says, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. <laughs> now this is a very unusual saying, I mm-hmm. think, you know, um, I agree. N- mm-hmm. you know, not only talking about, you know, places of honor in the kingdom but also you know that that those places are for those for whom it has been prepared and and you know there's really not much we don't have much to go on to try to answer well who might that be you know those for whom it has been prepared but it is an unusual topic and in matthew's gospel and and we if we compare matthew and luke on this versus mark we have a bit of a problem here because in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, Jesus actually predicts that the 12 would sit on thrones with him and judge, and they would be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's in Matthew 19, mm-hmm. 28 and the parallels in Luke 22, 28 through 30. That sounds to me like an addition by Matthew. I mean, really, to, I, I guess because of his, his angle mm-hmm. um, and his audience, I don't know. It, it seems... It, it seems well, like, but it's also shared by Luke. So, right, so, and did but, it come into Luke through Matthew? Right, Who knows? But I, yeah. where Mark's seems to really leave that to God as a question mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that that Jesus isn't going to answer. Right. Right. And and really, you know, d- despite that saying in Matthew and Luke, here in Mark, Jesus explicitly disavows any authority to grant mm-hmm. places of honor in the kingdom of God. And and really, I think I think the main point of it is that. Just the request to have the places of honor is is completely inconsistent, not only with the character of Jesus and his ministry, but also with the nature of the kingdom of mm-hmm. God. So, you know, it, it's just not appropriate to the kingdom of God at all. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. No. And, and, and actually, I know we're not specifically addressing Matthew and Luke, it doesn't really make sense there either. Yeah, I've always wondered about that saying, Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, to point out how inappropriate their question, their request was, grant each of us to sit at the right and at the left hand, it's worth noting that the ones who wind up on Jesus' right and left are the two insurrectionists with whom he's crucified. Mm -hmm. That's the only other place that we have this phrase in in Mark, and right. that's in Mark fifteen twenty seven, and it's worth noting as well. James and John use one set of words for right and left. Jesus uses a different set of words. There are two different ways to say left in Greek, and Jesus uses a slightly different word in the Greek. And the language of Mark fifteen twenty seven echoes Jesus' usage of the word at the right and at the left. 
Interesting. Yeah. So. And so it's almost like it's almost like you have this later echo in 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 Mark's narrative of the crucifixion just to just to highlight one you know really bring into stark relief, you know, how inappropriate it would have been for anybody to ask right. to be at Jesus' right hand and left right. hand because what they were asking was they didn't realize that they were asking, "Can we be crucified with you?" Right. And right. and of course in in Mark's version of of the crucifixion story, there aren't any apostles anywhere to be found. None of them right. are there. the two that end up being crucified right. next to him. Well, yeah. they're they're and they're they're called bandits or insurrect. Yeah. They're basically insurrectionists. Right, yeah. right. They're the ones who are on Jesus' right and left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> so then Mark goes on and reports that when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. And I, I've always thought that the other ten were offended because it was what they all wanted, and James and John simply had the nerve to ask first. <laughs> Beat them to the draw. Could be. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, the idea of recognizing that, that some were considered better than other, all those things mm-hmm. would lead to dissension within. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's possible also that the point of this was to show that the ambition and self-importance that their question even implied creates strife within the community of believers. And we know from other New Testament documents that such strife was an actual pastoral problem in the early church. So mm-hmm. perhaps Mark wanted to address that oh, as well from mm-hmm. this angle, yeah, you know, to sense. show how inappropriate that was mm-hmm. in, the, in the context of the mm-hmm. church. Um, so... Um, what, you know, what else can we make out of this? Um, you know, well, uh, as, as we've seen before in the pattern, Jesus follows the pattern. You know, we've had, we have this threefold pattern. Jesus predicts his passion. Uh, the disciples come up with something that is, reflects a total misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And then Jesus uses it as an opportunity to, to teach them about the nature of true discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so we find that here. And so this is yet another opportunity to try to get through to his disciples. Perhaps he's talking primarily to the 12 here. It doesn't specify, but the, maybe the context is, is, is meant to imply that he's dealing only with the 12 here. Mm-hmm. And so um, in the first instance in Mark 8, uh, 34 to 37, Jesus calls those who would follow him to take up their crosses, just as his path right. would lead him to die on a cross. In the second second instance in Mark 9, 35 to 37, Jesus corrects their concern for greatness with the saying that whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And in this instance, Jesus makes it clear that servanthood and the cross are linked Mm -hmm. in the life and death of Jesus uh, and therefore also in the lives of those who truly follow him. And so the idea here is that not only does Jesus... You know, and, and this is this has sort of been implicit all along. It's not just here, but the idea is that not only does Jesus teach them that they must give up their lives, that they must lay down their lives, that they must serve others, that they must be last. Not only does he not only does he say that, but he but he also shows them. You know, he demonstrates because in you know there's sort of the implicit all the way through, and it's very explicit here that Jesus' life is the pattern for them to follow right. in right. this kind yes. of of discipleship, in the way in which they're to follow in as disciples and being servants of all and last of all and sacrificing themselves for others. I, I'm kind of liking how this is these three predictions are kind of build on one another. And, mm-hmm. and really, once we get to this last one, I think we're getting the, really the full picture. We so are. You don't understand. So next one, well, it's a little clearer. It's a little more mm-hmm. emphasis still. We don't get it. And then finally, this last one is, look, you, you got to be a servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, it's, it's, it's about the servanthood. And this is your cross to bear and how those go together, like you just said. Well, and I think it's significant that, that not long after this passage, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so, you know, the teaching has, the teaching has stopped. You know, right. his ability to teach the disciples has sort of come to mostly to an end. And what we mainly find following Jesus' entry in Jerusalem is his, his, his conflict with the Jewish leaders and then basically Jesus' death on the right. cross. Right, right. So there's, you know, as, as we're going on, um, there's this whole issue with Gentiles referenced in here. How do yeah. Well, and that. this is this is part of the answer. So Jesus, part of the way Jesus answers them and tries to teach them about discipleship is that he points to the Gentiles. And he says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. 
And so he's, he's calling attention basically to the opposite of the kind of life that defines mm-hmm. discipleship. And he uses the negative example of the Gentiles mm-hmm. here to say that their rulers lorded over them and those who are considered greater mm-hmm. tyrants over them. And we might be surprised at this negative use of the term Gentiles because in a lot of places in the New Testament, right. it has a much more positive right. connotation. The Gentiles are the ones who respond to the gospel, you know. Right. The Gentiles are the ones who come to faith. But it's clear if you if you look at the word Gentiles in the Gospels that Jesus at times uses the word to describe the non-Jewish world as one that is contrary to God's purposes right. and, and can refer to Gentiles in a negative way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, this statement about the exercise of power in the Gentile world is treated as something sort of assumed to be true. You know, he says, that among the Gentiles, this is how they do Mm -hmm. this. And um, Craig Evans, in his Mark commentary, points out how many times Josephus uses the words uh, turinos and turinine, which are the noun and verb forms of tyrant and tyranny. Uh, in his descriptions of Greek rulers in in his writings. Um, But I think, you know, there might be a little bit of a bias there because it was not just a quality of the Hellenistic world. From ancient times, rulers wielded absolute authority. Right. And this was true right. in this was true of Jewish rulers, this was true of of Egyptian rulers, mm-hmm. Persian rulers. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, those I mean in that day basically those who ruled had absolute authority and mm-hmm. and with absolute authority went absolute power and 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 they used that power in a in a in a tyrannical way yeah basically. yeah absolutely that was absolutely. just the norm it, it, it was the norm I, I i am finding it interesting the use of gentiles here a little bit i guess i'm thinking about mark's audience right um if, you know if the, he's writing to a congregation in rome they would be all too familiar with the way the romans used power right right so an an interesting thing there, but I I think it also reflects just the use of language, Mm -hmm. you know, as a Mm -hmm. whole. Well, and this would have been, I think, an idiom in the Jewish world. Yeah, I agree. I agree, yep. So, um, okay, let's keep going on. Yeah, so Jesus makes a clear distinction. He says, it is not so among you. Uh, and that's verse 43. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it interesting that in Matthew twenty twenty six, Matthew changes a bit. It will no. not mm-hmm. be so among you, which sounds almost, I mean, it could be predictive. It could be prescriptive as a yes. thou shalt not. I, I, that's, yeah, I, I, yeah. I kind of like that better yeah. you know um, yeah, yeah. You look you're not going to do you're not going to act like that and are. some people actually in some english versions actually translate uh, interpret mark 10 in the same way that it must not be so among you mm. this is not to be the pattern of leadership among those who follow jesus right. rather jesus says whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant mm-hmm. and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all mm-hmm. and he doesn't say last here he says slave of all and so Jesus reinforces, I think, and expands on what he has already said yes. in Mark nine thirty five. And so here, juxt- greatness is juxtaposed with being a servant, and being first is juxtaposed with being a right. slave. But now again, I think it's important to note that this ideal of servant leadership was not unique to Jesus. It was implied. It is implied right. in the Hebrew Bible in First Kings twelve, when when uh, the tribes, I believe, it they come to uh, David. And basically um, uh, say, you know, that they will serve him if, if he will serve them, you know, basically. And it was also not uncommon in the Greek and Roman world for um, moral writers to, to uh, talk about how that this would be, this is the ideal for what it means to truly lead. But I think what makes Jesus' teaching unique is the manner in which he set the example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was obviously by going to the cross and giving his life. Exactly. So if we look at the... If we look at this passage as a whole, I mean, it seems that it is a prescription for how one should live. Exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. and particularly within the con- within the context of the kingdom of mm-hmm. God and, and the community that seeks to follow the kingdom, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, Jesus basically points to himself. You know, the the passage concludes in verse forty five by by making it clear that the the true basis for the life of the kingdom, including leadership, is Jesus' example. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And um, I like what Adela Yarborough Collins says. She calls this one of the richest Christological statements in Mark's gospel, and I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nevertheless, the primary focus is on shaping the life of the community that follows Jesus. You know, Mm -hmm. basically, you know, Jesus, the whole intent of this passage is to teach the disciples about how they relate to one another in the community of followers, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, he says he came not to be served like the rulers who lorded over their servants, but to serve, and those who would follow him must embrace that pattern of service mm-hmm. among one another, and especially in their life together. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I think the Christological implications of this passage cannot right. be overlooked. Right. I don't think they are amongst, amongst good theologians. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's quite a bit of debate about this topic, about, about you know, what, what are we meant to read from this? Mm-hmm. And there is, there is a lot of debate about this in New Testament circles. Whether, whether Jesus is alluding in a knowing way to Isaiah 53 is a, is a big debate. And whether we should read this in light of the servant song, um, there's been a lot of debate about mm. this. There's been a lot of debate about whether even this is an authentic saying of Jesus or it was something that was created by the church. Um, and so, I mean, I obviously, I think it is a saying of Jesus, and I do think Jesus alludes to Isaiah 53. Uh, but we'll, let's, let's, let's sort of trace all that out. So first of all, the fact that Jesus says that he came to give his life a ransom for many, I think, again, points us forward to the saying that Jesus uh, makes uh, over the cup at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So we have that connection of the for many in both verses. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that in Matthew 26, 28, um, Matthew's account of the Last Supper uh, adds the words for the forgiveness of sins Mm -hmm. to just sort of spell it out more clearly. Mm-hmm. Now, as again, I do think that the servant song of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 does inform the language of this passage, although that's been disputed. And I think there's some clear allusions, especially to Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. The righteous one, my servant, mm-hmm. shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Notice the allusion to the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, we have the Mm -hmm. allusion to many there, Mm -hmm. and made intercession for the transgressors. So I think there's some, I think there's some, it's, it's, I mean, Jesus is clearly not quoting this passage. Right. But I right. think there are some clear allusions to the mm-hmm. language of this passage in what Jesus says. Yeah. Um, you know, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. And I think we're meant to, to understand that in mm-hmm. light of Isaiah mm-hmm. 53. Now, it is important to note, however, that the term ransom is used in the, H, in, in the Hebrew Bible generally differently than here usually ransom is 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 used in a sacrificial context mm-hmm. so for example um, the you know the the you know, when you have a firstborn child you're to give an offering right. as a ransom for that child right. and, uh, and 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 it's really more of a of a sacrifice in the place of you know because the firstborn, it's really a recognition of the principle that in God's in God's world, the firstborn belonged to Him. Right. And so you 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 sacrifice this offering uh, as a recognition of that. So it's a little bit different typically in the Hebrew Bible, but there are some references to ransoming persons from the consequences of their actions, both intentional and mm-hmm. unintentional, mm-hmm. both in the Hebrew Bible and the Greco-Roman world. And one of the clearest ones, I think, is the martyrdom of an unnamed woman and her seven sons in 4th Maccabees 17. Uh, and in verse 21, it says, they became, as it were, a ransom mm-hmm. for the sins of the people. And the word ransom in, in Maccabees is antipsukon, which I think is interesting because in, in Mark 10, 1045, Jesus says he came to give his life, which is tainpsukane, for the sake of anti, he uses the same preposition, mm-hmm. anti, 
Palon. So that so there, there, there's an it's an interesting overlap there. And hmm. what, one of the things we should note is that Fourth Maccabees is probably either a, about the same time as Mark's Gospel, or maybe well, a little yeah, later. That's right. That's right. So. so so we see that kind of thinking expressed a little bit differently in Fourth mm-hmm. Maccabees. I think the language is the language of atonement, clearly, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would be proper to try to, to read in a particular theory of the atonement with the, mm, into this passage. I think Jesus is just making the statement, and I think we're okay. left to other New Testament passages to unpack what this, what oh, this really okay. means in terms okay. of a theological understanding of what atonement means. Mm, okay. Jesus is just talking about the fact that he's, he's giving his life as a ransom for many. Okay. And okay. I think it's, it's forgiveness language, but how that works in terms of a theory of atonement. There are lots of different theories of atonement. And, mm-hmm. of course, one of the theories of atonement is the ransom theory of atonement. Right, right. Uh, which came, came about early on in the early church, and the question about that was, to whom was the ransom paid? Uh, that, that, that's a question that doesn't make much sense here. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to try to read that to, kind of stuff into it. Okay, okay. Jesus is simply pointing forward to his life as something that is going to, going to bring about forgiveness of sins. Okay, okay. For the many. Okay. So any last thoughts about this? Yeah, you know, basically in our text for today, we have this threefold pattern of Jesus' passion predictions, the disciples' misunderstanding, and Jesus' teaching about the true nature of discipleship. And we find this pattern completed here. And there's only going to be one more episode. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' healing of the blind man. And then after that, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. And then we're... Basically, to fulfill his mission right. of serving by giving his life as a ransom for right. the many. And, and there's some good reasons, I think, to interpret the many as for all. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to ask Christy to shed some light on this passage from the perspective of the Reformers. So uh, take it away, Christy. Yeah, today I pretty much looked at Calvin's um, response to this passage and um, his commentaries. And I think what's interesting is there's just several themes, several themes that are kind of traditionally Reformation themes that came through. The first one, I think, which might surprise you, is freedom of a Christian. (laughs) And uh, that's always a surprise with Calvin and Calvin's reputation. Um, But I think what's interesting in here and what people that don't read Calvin beyond what somebody assumes about Calvin or some kind of is, is that he has a lot of space for human, for human freedom and human choice. And that is a surprise when you think about comments on predestination, but let, let me uh, flesh this out for you here. So in here, in this passage, there's um, emphasis on God's call on our lives versus human ambition, James and John, if you will. And um, this idea that Calvin says that this particular passage means that we need to be on guard, watching out for how our ambition can challenge God's call on our lives. So in other words, our ambitious can cause us to choose other than what God has in mind for well, us. And, and goodness gracious, I mean, what, a, what an incredible pastoral insight because, I mean, that's a total, totally pre, uh, ever-present reality in our lives. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. time we have to choose a make a career choice, you know, it, it, we have to source, sift out. Is it my ambition or is this God's will talking? Exactly, exactly. And his point is, if, I, if this can happen to the disciples, mm-hmm. it can happen to us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and there's really a tendency for even those who have free adoption from God to raise themselves or to try to use human ambition to get there themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and again, how, how many times do we see that happen? How many times do we even fall into that trap ourselves? Absolutely. So this yeah. is interesting because one would think, well, if you're called to be, you know, in that full, that predetermination yeah. mindset that people yeah. assume Calvin says, this says, this is different. He, he, he comes to this differently. People aren't used to associating freedom with the term Calvin. Uh, exactly. In, in fact, I mean, um, my, one of my daughters-in-law had a, had a course on religion in her college course, and uh, she was finishing up her college after a long break, and she came back, she came to me, and she said, you know, um, I, I learned that Calvin was all about, you know, no free choice, mm-hmm. and that Luther was about free choice, mm-hmm. and, but you're a Presbyterian, which comes from Calvin, and I don't understand that. Help me to understand that, you know? Right, <laughs> And right. I had to explain to her, you know, well, number one, you know, 
Presbyterians don't necessarily believe everything Calvin said. And number two, you know, Calvin was a little bit more more uh, complicated than that. He's more complicated than that. And so, you know, here, Calvin clearly recognizes that we have human ability to turn away from God's mm-hmm. call. And I th- it, 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 to me, it's as clear as day. Um, so uh, those that claim that Calvin is predetermines everything does don't really understand the depth mm-hmm. uh, the depth of the figure um well as we said many times it's one thing to read calvin of the institutes and it's another right. thing to read calvin in the uh, commentaries and to have the overall perspective exactly. you have to have both right that's important too and i you know i talk about the institutes this a brilliant attempt and i want to say brilliant he's really one of the first to try to put together the Surely. systematic theology and it, it's not perfect. There are holes in it. I mean, you can see, you can hear Calvin, even when you read through the Institutes, trying to make the pieces right. fit together within the context of his worldview, which mm-hmm. is very much present there. Um, and He's wrestling with it. He wrestles yeah, with it, and you yeah. can see it, and I think you could see it because he keeps working on it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not ever quite done. Right. There's so many revisions. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think at the end of the day, there's just things that, I do think this is a tension I, in, in his, whether there's mm-hmm. freedom or whether things are predetermined, and it's a tension throughout. It's not, he doesn't get to the end in a, in, in a completely uh, um, uh, sewed-up manner that we yeah. might want to think so. Yeah. Well, it seems, that, it seems that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, always is, is, is key for, for Calvin, and maybe he has a hard time figuring out intellectually and conceptually how that how human freedom fits in exactly that, which we still try to figure out that today right? exactly so in this again um he advocates for us to be on our guards against the thoughts that lead us astray and he says look if you're truly invested in the call that god has made on your lives you will not be tempted down that path of ambition. So I'm not sure I would agree with him on that <laughs> because I think ambition is always a temptation. I, th- you know? I think so too. I think so too. I've made lots of sacrifices for the sake of, of my calling and for the sake of ministry, and yet, um, um, you know, at each step of the of the of the process of the journey, you know, there have been potential there's been a potential for me to follow my own ambition versus what i really felt like was god's call right right there's this conflict within and so but again he's aware that this is this is eating at us our human Mm -hmm. beings this was pretty flowery language he used but basically he says look um to achieve god's goal one has to continue to labor within the kingdom without pomp and circumstance instead trying to force something um, by the hands of humanity. It is it is that allowing God to work through the called person who responds in humility and service, not in aggression toward an end. Mm-hmm. So he's recognizing kind of just what Alan identified there, I think, it, it, even though he says, <laughs> he says, look, you, aren't gonna, you shouldn't be tempted, um, but that still seems to be part of your human it sin. It is a temptation. Right? Yeah. And, and um, it, 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 it kind of, that idea of total depravity, I think, does kind of weave its way into here. Well, I mean, it even gets down to the practical thing of how, how wide is your influence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that, 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 you know, is a concept that, you know, we think maybe is not necessarily sinful to, to, to want to have a broader influence, you know, in terms of the effect of your ministry. That can be a good thing, right? Right. But boy, that, I found that to be a, a real uh, potential pitfall because that can, that can lead you down the wrong it path. It can. It can, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Now, another thing I wanted just to pull out and remind you about this freedom of a Christian con- conceptually uh, is the uh, track 1520 tract by Luther um, um, on the freedom of a Christian. And uh, so this is kind of some of the Reformation concepts that really started, really revolutionized the Reformation and really shifted it was this idea, you know, um, um, that being uh, truly called in Christ that that you're you're free um, but you're also a, a servant of all and this fits right into what we've just learned about in the scripture and this is what Luther then builds on in terms of the the Reformation period now now remind me um, was Jacob Arminius a contemporary of Calvin's uh, no he's a little bit later than Calvin ah. I, I guess the point of my question is wonder what kind of uh, texts 
are, are sort of premises that Calvin had in mind that he was responding to in, in the writing of some of his works. You know, would he have been familiar, for example, with Luther's tract, The Freedom of the Christian? Yes. Yeah, I would think Ab- so. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but, but some of the debates about Arminius and his teaching, that would have been more Synod of Dort, and yes. that would have been a later yes. generation. Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, that's this whole idea of, you know, what I can do are my actions bringing me to, um, to the kingdom, sure. right? So it's that kind of grace versus the works. So I think that's right because well, Arminius th- is late enough that his ideas are building on some of the, some of the problems. And of course, even Luther is, is kind of blamed for, oh, well, you, you know, if, if you just believe by faith alone, you don't have to do anything. Right. And um, Luther and Calvin also say, well, but you were doing things because you're responding right. out of that it's faith. It's a response mm-hmm. to grace, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and I'm just thinking, I was just wondering about that because I think when people think about free will versus versus um, sovereignty, you know, they associate Arminius with free will. Very true. They, they do, yeah. 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 And, uh, so I was just trying to get the time frame on that. Right, and I think it kind of important there because... I think we want to pin these ideas on people. And a lot mm-hmm. of the things that, that start with even Luther are kind of fleshed out by later people. So we get these backlashes as things kind of move out. It's a and back and forth kind exactly. of dialogue. Yeah. But just to point that out, that some of these ideas that are emerging here are, are very Reformation responses to this passage. Sure, sure. Another thing that comes out later, but is this whole idea of, of grace. And one of the pieces we get there is this idea of baptism. And here, Calvin talks about the idea of baptism, that the disciples were baptized to service and to the cross. Um, and we are not exempted from the call that God has made on our lives, but we do, again, have some freedom to live into that call or to step away. Um, so it seems like you don't have any choice. Uh, <laughs> seems like you, 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 you can't choose to live in God. God's already chosen to do that, but once you're there, you can step away. It seems to be like a, a, a well, negative. It sounds like, and it sounds like Calvin is saying, you know, not only will James and John drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism, not only will the 12 be, you know, mm-hmm. do this, but this is really basically indicative of the life of all Christians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here, um, this theme is that there's cost to being Christian and that they will have to endure um, you can't serve Christ in an easy way, but the mm. followers themselves have a cross to bear, which yeah. we've been, is again, very true of what we've been talking about. Um, but again, a theme of, of, of Calvin. Um, and then he, he says that what our individual role is up to God, not Christ. And therefore hmm. there will seemingly yeah, be different calls on our lives. Um, it, is, it is part of the mystery Mm. This is interesting and maybe surprising. There is not equality among the children of God. And I think he's breaking down here, you know, when you think of, of, of Calvin saying, look, it's not just priesthood of all believers, which it is, but, but these believers have different, different roles. roles so you might be, church, a, yeah. and, and this comes down to, of course, his, um, his maybe, governance. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, polity. polity. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. You know, with your teacher or your pastor, or you're a, dis, a, a, um, a deacon, what those are. So, well, and it's interesting that, that he, he says that sort of that distribution of roles is up to God and not Christ because, you know, Paul says that the roles are distributed by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And he has that passage basically where he says it's, you know, there are different ministries, yeah, exactly. but the one Christ, different different workings, but the same Spirit, different callings, but the same God. I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing there. And, and I guess, you know, my view of Jesus as the one who reigns at the right hand of God, you know, that Jesus is definitely very much involved in this. You would in, think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. As the head of yeah. the church, right? But I think, you know, he's responding He's responding there to the passage. Yeah, it's, it's not know, for me to say, to say who's going to sit at the right hand. Exactly, exactly. Another theme we see is this idea of descent among the followers. And um, he uses um, the text 10, 41 mm-hmm. here to talk about that descent. You know, when the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James Dawes. So, um and uh, discusses but an example of human nature that ambition can very much corrupt even the most dedicated. So he claims that the gospel has put this in here to really draw out the dissension in disciples and to teach them a lesson. Mm. 
And yeah. um, Jesus taught them it was foolish to fight about nothing. <laughs> there is no space for this in his kingdom, which we kind of addressed earlier. Yeah. Um, Calvin argues that it, this applies to kings and magistrates, that they should be humble too. And um, Christ assigns pastors of the church to serve. Yeah. Um, one of the pieces that I pick up to is here, they've got this very much this reality of a world where people aren't equal. I, I mean, mm-hmm. most of us in Americans, we at least, that's part of our, our DNA, you know, all are created or equal, even if it's not practiced. Here, there really, there really is so much um, difference between nobility yeah. and ruling classes. And I think, I think we see this in here. They're having trouble making sense of, well, how come a king's a king if he's equal to the other simple guy? And how does that work? And I think this is well, what Calvin's you've, working You've mentioned through. before, this kind of is a holdover from the medieval era where, you know, there were distinct roles for, for each person mm-hmm. and you followed that role. If you're a magistrate, you're a magistrate. Mm-hmm. If you're a farmer, you're a farmer. Right, if you're right. a soldier, you're a soldier. Right. You know, if you're a priest, you're a priest. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that there was this kind of uh, almost segregation in society yeah. into not only different classes, but also different right. strata of what, who does what in exactly, society. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's not the kind of modern sense that any, any Joe peasant is called to be a pastor. Anyone any, can grow up to be the president of the United States, right? right. Which is kind <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of, kind of what happens as you start to look through some of the other pieces when you get peasants starting to interpret scripture and some of the ideas that go further like with what some of the Anabaptists will do Mm -hmm. that's that's too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just too far. Today we look at it and we're like, hey, they, they were really onto some yeah, things. Right. But it's too far for this. At that for, time. At this yeah. time for, mm-hmm. for these kind of more mainstream folks. Sure. Another theme, um, this idea of two kingdoms um, that, again, we're kind of talking about it, but they're called the different things. Um, and the disciple is not the same as a magistrate. He I've actually, always found that to be one of the most fascinating ideas of the Reformation era, you know, that there were these distinct kingdoms. And it's almost like there's a whole different set of living principles for someone who's a yes, magistrate and yes, for someone who's a yes. Christian. So how does a Christian magistrate called by God to that position? And of course, this is going to manifest itself out in the next few centuries to the divine right of kings, Mm. that they are called by God and therefore they are under God. And in fact, that, that discussion of who has more power, you know, uh, uh, a temporal king or a religious figure back and forth and back and forth. Mm. So this partly comes out here, um, and uh, anyway, I just wanted to point that out is, is there's some there's some conflict here. I, I think in Calvin's mind or or at least in how we would look at Calvin with this balancing out of what is meant by Christian equality and Christian call. And so if we're not all called to be equal, we're not going to end up doing things equal. We're not all going to die crucifixion either. I mean, there's right. all those things are part of it. Um, so I was thinking that beyond these themes... I think this plays into a larger theology of the Reformation and John Calvin as it fundamentally points out what it means to be a disciple of Christ. In the construct of their world, it is that society has it wrong, that all are called to be disciples and all called to their unique identities to be in service, in the service of the kingdom. And how Calvin thus creates his, this is how he creates his systematic theology. His governance of the church and his instructions for lay piety all come into play in this passage as it is a reflection of how the world of human reality and God's realm are all tied into creation. Really? That's interesting because, you know, as I read Jesus, I read Jesus saying that the way it's done in the world is very different from the way it's done in the kingdom. And it sounds like it sounds like Calvin is saying the way it's done in the kingdom defines the way it's done in the world. Um. Yeah, that's how he would like it to be. And, of yeah. course, what, is, what happens? He sets up this, you know, Geneva um, perfect world. And so then, um, with the other big thing that I, I, I thought about that, because God is sovereign, there's overriding idea of providence and that God's will will predominate over human desires. What is important in this discussion and what I see from the institutes is that humans have some ability to respond to God's word and therefore some ability to step away from it. I think it really reflects um, Calvin, who's a man, envisioned a corporate faith. Um, 
uh, one, that the individual nature of faith that we see today, and therefore the individual can move away from God's call, but not the corporate body. Ah. That's how I'm understanding ah. it. So the individual can can move away from God's call, can can disobey God, I guess, can move in a, mm-hmm. in a direction different from the kingdom, but the body of Christ can't do that. Right. I, I, I guess, I guess um, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear a reformer say that because I guess he's must, he must be assuming then that the Roman Catholic Church is not, not truly the body of oh, Christ. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of a given. Oh, my God. No, they, they actually believe that, that, that the Pope and is it particular. In fact, I was just listening to a piece now that is not even an individual of the Pope, but it's the it's the apparatus, mm-hmm. if you will, that is so sinful and is representative of, um, of, of the, of the devil and the devil's minions, mm. basically, yeah. um, kind of an interesting space. So again, it's, it's not that there's all individuals are bad. But it's the whole mm-hmm. monolith of the Roman Catholic church that mm-hmm. represents evil. Yeah. I mean, truly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so the problem, it seems to me, from those who turn to predestination into predeterminism is that they individualize the faith so much that they begin to identify whether individuals are damned or called and that this has been determined from the beginning. And I would agree that this is the tension in Calvin's works. And one is that clearly resolved, but I would criticize the tradition that double predestination is the central idea of Calvin's mm, theology. Yeah. Well, and because, you know, it seems that more the idea is that um, the church as a body is predestined. You know, the idea of mm-hmm. predestination or choosing is is that the church has been chosen. Right. But that doesn't necessarily predetermine the outcome and of, of what, what God has done in each individual life. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. So that's at least some of the things I was thinking about. So. Yeah. Well, thanks, Christy. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, everybody. We are back. And as we are processing this really rich scripture, we're thinking about, you know, um, as we're called to be disciples, what does that really mean on our lives? I mean, I think I think some of us go in and we're kind of like James and John, and we want to sit at the right hand or the left hand of, of, of Jesus, and um, maybe that's not what we're called to do. Yeah, and you know, I made some comments earlier, and I reflect on something. You know, one of my great heroes of the faith was um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, which definitely dates me to the 20th century. But um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, if you don't know, he was the pastor of the Riverside Church, um, uh, which was an American Baptist church at the time. He had he did a brief stand at the Brick Church, which is a, a prominent Presbyterian mm-hmm, church mm-hmm. in New York New City. York City. Mm-hmm. But uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick was one who um, who sort of championed uh, for a more progressive uh, view of scripture and theology against the fundamentalists mm-hmm. back in the 1920s. And um, for that, you know, he, he was always one of my heroes. He was also, he was also sort of known at one point as America's kind of a, as America's preacher. And, mm-hmm. um, yes. you know, and so as a young man entering into the ministry, you know, and, and having this hero, Harry Emerson Fosdick, you know, in the back of my mind had always been this idea of being this, you know, nationally known, you know, preacher and having, being able to preach on a national stage oh, yes. and all of that, you know. And I mean, all of that was just pure human ambition. It wasn't, it wasn't ugly, you know, mean spirited ambition. I mean, it was, it was, it was naive ambition. It was youthful ambition. You know, it was, it was more dreaming, you know, Mm -hmm. of wouldn't it be cool if I could, if I could have the opportunity to be able to speak to so many people and to minister to so many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I realize now that part of that was an ego thing, you know, because, you know, when you're in that, in that, time of your life, you know, you're trying to figure out, well, what is my worth? What is my value as a person? And you have all kinds of external measures for that, you know? Right, right. So I, you know, it wasn't, it was just kind of a natural, I think it's part of natural human development, you know, you, so. you, you get, you, you have these big dreams when you're younger and, and then when you get into middle age, 
or maybe even begin to get more into your senior years as I, I am right. now a senior citizen yeah. being over 60, I get the senior discount, you know, um, um, you know, you begin to realize, you know, my worth isn't measured by those external things. You know, my, my worth, my, my contribution to the kingdom is, is measured more by things like faithfulness and, and truthfulness and yeah. integrity and service and love and, and, right. and these kinds of things. Right. I, I keep thinking of, um, I'm a little bit younger than Alan, but when we were little kids, like in grade school, we used to make these little folded folded things. Yeah. And, you, and you'd, you'd put them in your fingers and you'd make the little um, things open and close. And usually it was supposed to be this kind of predictive about what mm, you want to do. Fortune telling. Fortune telling kind mm. of thing. But But really there seemed to be this real challenge between what do you want in life? Do you want fame? You know, is is, is that the drawing thing? Or money and you think about what draws people to say well i want to be famous because there's a sense i I need people to remember me Mm -hmm. my worth Mm -hmm. is caught up in what others think about me Mm -hmm. or money because that way i can buy whatever i want want, and i I could buy prestige for myself too Mm -hmm. and uh, there was also happiness was a choice but that usually in those terms went back to either being famous or (laughs) or being wealthy you know or both and so it it, you know kind of an interest i think that's very much built into who we are though is this Mm -hmm. especially as individuals it's like a lot of our worth comes from outside and i think it's really as we understand that that our worth is comes in our discipleship and comes in our and yes. as children of God. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, frankly, I, I might say that, you know, uh, my kids are, you know, 34, 32 and 27. And so I guess they're millennials and maybe the younger one is a Gen Z. I don't know. Uh, what, what, how old is she? She's 27, born oh, in 94. She's still, she's still a, she's still still a millennial. millennial. Yeah, yeah, so they're all millennials. And we know what we know what some people say in a disparaging way about millennials. But to some extent, I mean, yeah, I do see, you know, uh, one of my one of my children, you know, one of my sons, he he really has a lot of um, dreams about his career as a musician. He's a jazz trumpet player and he has some a lot of a lot of big dreams about that. But, you know, I look at I look at some of what, you know, for example, my, my oldest son, who is just finishing his PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University, he just finished it actually about a month ago. My daughter, who, who works in marketing, but really, really her main, her main outlet in life is her church that she does a lot mm-hmm. of work for. She works with her AV team and, and does a lot of things. And they just seem to have a better handle on their own sense of worth. And it's not so much tied up with, with whether or not they're wealth, rich or famous, you know, right, it's, right. it's really more a matter of, of, you know, things that we would say, what's really important, you know, family and, right. and love and, and faith and, that's a good, and that's caring a good for point. others. Well, and of course that, that, age group is defined by 9-11 and that experience mm-hmm. of living that. Mm-hmm. So there became a quest for what's important. I think right. that's t- very true well, that age group. my oldest son, you know, at the age of 17, signed up to be a Marine to go off and serve his country in, in, in Iraq, you know. And so, you know, yeah. and he did it because he felt like he, you know, if he, you know, if he, he wasn't going to do it, who would, you know. So he, he went right. and served. I think another big shift, and it's still shifting um, is, you know, we were really grew up in the time of, you know, the great president, the great mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the big superstars of the, the movie stars. Mm-hmm. And those, there's so much more media now that there's less worship of, right. of individuals. There's still it's some. Like, I, can't even, I can't even keep track who all the actors are. I, I know. And all the music <laughs> groups. And, yeah. you know, my kids... Now I have, my kids um, are all Gen Z's. So my kids are a little bit younger. I've got a 21 and an 18, but they spend a lot of time, you know, my my one spends his free time watching chess videos and watching these, you know, people that would not be at the top of a a fame list. You know, they aren't watching the, not sitting down watching television and and specific actors on TV shows. Now I know that still exists to some extent, but it's lessening out with these, these, these generations coming up is that there's just, they have more interests and they have more people that they follow in their specific interests. So it kind of loses that 
one famous sure. person kind of thing. Well, and I, you know, I wonder how that translates into the future of ministry. I, I, you know, I've seen some pastors seem to make some choices that weren't very, I don't know, it would seem to be more all about them. The decisions they made about their careers were mm-hmm. all about them mm-hmm. and not about the benefit of the church that they were serving. And I, I even had one person tell me when I was in Houston, you know, you're called to serve the church, not any particular church. And I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I get that in some respect, but I also believe I'm called to serve this particular church mm-hmm. in this particular time. Yeah, I, well, I think so. That's why we call it a call. Right, right? exactly. When we take one, but, and it's really easy to get caught up with, you know, trying to look what's next and, and, and still see some kind of upward movement. But a bigger church isn't necessarily a, a better no, call. Exactly, um, exactly, and, and that's something that I've come to recognize, you know, through through my experiences. Um, uh, to some extent, I started out at the top of my career by teaching at the largest seminary in the United States. There you, you know? go, and I'm much happier pastoring Hickman Presbyterian right, Church. Right, right. <laughs> well, and I serve as an associate, and there's people. Folks are saying, oh, well, you don't always want to be an associate. And I said, there's actually things I really love about being an associate. And there's places of ministry I'm called to do that I I would not have time to do as a solo pastor. Well, and and to me, I think it boils down to that following the call. I see the call of Christ. Maybe Calvin might want us to say the call of God, but but whatever it is, we're following that call and seeking to be faithful to that mm-hmm. call. Now, you know, I've, I've, known some, I've known some pastors who are more Gen Xers in their age group, and some of the ways in which they, they acted really seemed strange to me because it was almost like they felt entitled. And, um, you know, they, and they almost treated it like, you know, um, I, I have some professional um, uh, perks and rights that I can claim and that if you don't give them to me, then I'm going to demand them from you. And that, that all seemed, it was almost like more of, of, of mindset for a corporate f- setting than, than a mindset for serving the church. Interesting observation. As a Gen Xer myself, I won't you know, take that personally. <laughs> I, I said some. I said some. I, I think. I think anytime you anytime you you characterize generations, you know, you, can, you, you can't. You yeah. can't. I mean, it, it's not right. one size fits all. Yeah, I just. It's right. Uh, there there have been some. I think, but I think I'm sure there are people in my generation. You know, I'm sort of at the in the middle of the boomers I was and the say, Gen you're Xs. Kind of a cusper, yeah. Yeah, I'm a cusper, and and but um, there've been people. Uh, there've always been people in ministry who have been seduced by the lure of the voice of ego to right. do things things that were in their best interest and not in the best interest of the congregation I, they were serving. Yeah, right? I agree. That, that's always been I true. Agree. Yeah. And, and so, but I wonder to, you know, one of the things I've noticed because I serve on the, on the board of directors of the Omaha Presbyterian seminary foundation, and we award Apollos scholarships to seminarians. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've noticed in our, in our scholarship applications is that there are uh, a number of folks who I would say are millennials or maybe even Gen Zers who are going to seminary, but they have no plans to go serve in a church. They want to go either start a nonprofit or they want to go serve in a nonprofit setting, which I find interesting. Some find it disturbing. I just, I just find it interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see how that will play out because, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if, you, if you know that you're not going to make much money in the church, you got to know that if you're going to go out and start your own nonprofit, you're really going to be looking at, you know, precarious financial situation there. Yeah, well, exactly. And I, I do see, I do see some shift from that, you know, basing success or basing satisfaction with life or basing call, I suppose, even off shifting from monetary amounts to other non-tangibles, but I'm not sure it's translating. I'm not sure it's still translating yet um, from what you're describing there into what these folks are looking for. There's a fear of the church and there's a fear of denominations. We Mm. know that. And um, not realizing, you know, one of the good things, even though the pay isn't terribly high, we have, a, a pretty good pension program sure. and we have pretty good mm-hmm. insurance yes. and 
those are protections that we kind of get at being in a denomination, whereas the non-denoms or these just kind of randomized, I'm going to start my own charity. Mm-hmm. That's kind of frightening. I don't it's know where precarious. that ends up this, yeah. this group later on. Right. I, and I don't know, you know, it'd be interesting to see how many of these folks get insurance, how many of these folks um, um, are getting some kind of pension. I, I suspect that's, not very many. No, I would agree. And, um, I, I do find it interesting, though, because we're tar- sort of talking around the whole issue of how we follow the call to be disciples, you know, right. that we seek to serve and not to be served, and we give our lives in service to others. And, I mean, I, you know, I guess it remains to be seen whether this trend holds, but I mean, if somebody is willing to, to, to step into that kind of almost very financially precarious role of serving people who are in need in a nonprofit setting, you know, I have to say, wow, I admire your courage. You know, if that's yeah, truly that's God's true. call in your that's, life. That's, that's true, right? It's courageous and it's, um, yeah, it's courageous, and I think I think there's a sense, and, I, and to their credit, when the millennials look at the world, they see a lot of things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Sometimes I think they might open their eyes to see what's going right, mm-hmm. but um, I think they see a lot's wrong, and I think they think they're responsible to fix a lot of it. And mm-hmm. and I do like that energy there, and, sure. and suggesting of of new ways maybe to to tackle the planet's well. It might problems. be it might be nice. It might be nice if some of us old, older folks would 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 uh, have have that kind of same drive, you know, mm-hmm. of, of, of service. Uh, you know, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I say it many times, you know. In, in my life experience, um, it's just been a fact that has been confirmed over and over and over and over again. You know, you don't find fulfillment through how wide is your influence. You don't find right. fulfillment through... You know, how big is my paycheck? You don't find fulfillment through even, you know, how, how, um, how tall is the steeple of the church that I serve? Right. You know, right. you find fulfillment, you know, when you're, when you're actually serving I agree. a person. You know, and, when and you're when you're making when you're making that visit or you're interacting yep. with someone who's just lost a mom or a dad. Right. Or you're 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 you know, you're for me. It's going to grandparents' day for one of the boys in my church yes, who, who yes. doesn't have a grandparent who's nearby who can go with him. You know, right, right. Uh, just just those those little things, those small things that seem insignificant almost, but those are the things that bring the most fulfillment I agree. to me. Yeah, it's 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 definitely the relationships, and that's you know, as I come to look at at life and all the pieces in it. It's the relationships that ultimately are are what make it fulfilling. Yeah, and I feel a little awkward bringing this up, you know, in relation to Jesus saying the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, because I'm talking about what feels fulfilling to me and my service to Christ, right? But I think that's okay because I, I think the point of it is that when we, you know, it's like Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If right. you lose your life, you're going to find right. it. Right. And, and that's, that's where I found life. I found, I found service or trying to be the best servant I can be to be life giving to me. Yes. And I think that is, I think that's what we're supposed to get out of it. What we're supposed to learn from it. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.